Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to the author of Whispers of the Gods, Tales from Baseball's Golden Age, told by the men who played it. I'm talking about Peter Golenbach. He's one of the best sports writers of the last 50 years, and I'm just so honored he's going to be on the show. Also, I've got some choice words about the NFL, and it's, you know, institutionalized racism. Uh, I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards. Got some Jake's Takes, Super Bowl action, and more. But first, let's talk to Peter Golenbach. So I, I got to ask you, Peter, first of all, before we say anything, I just want to say that you were such a formative writer for me, for my politics. I read Bums when I was, I think, 12. <laughs> and it, it was a life changer for me, sincerely. Uh, just the way you looked at sports, learning about the people behind the great plays, learning about the humanity behind the icons, learning about what Jackie Robinson went through, which I only had a, a basic knowledge of when I was that young. And it was terrific. So thank you so much for, for your work for in my life. Oh, my my pleasure. And I feel the same way about you. Oh, geez. And you're right. That's it's funny. I, I, I was talking to Bob Lipsack the other day. And uh, he was telling me, you, you had mentioned at the nation's conference uh, that, that he was the one who somehow connected you to the nation. And yeah. uh, he, too, was incredibly complimentary. Ugh, a my great, a, he's my hero. He, he's a great man. Yeah. Well, whispers of the gods, tales from, I mean, tales from baseball's golden age told by the men who played it. First and foremost, I got to know, like I'm imagining you trying to figure out what project to do next. You've written so many books. What was it about this project, this idea that appealed to you and wh where did it come from? Well, it really came from the, the death of Jim Bouton is where it came mm -hmm. from. Uh, when I lived in Englewood in the 80s, he lived about three blocks away and we were like brothers. And I used to babysit for his, his little kids. They were like 12, 10, and 8, something mm -hmm. like that. And we were very, very close. Um, when he died, you know, I thought to myself, one way sort of to keep him alive would be to write a book that contained... Uh, we, had, we had a couple of diff different sessions. One which we did for Dynasty, where he talked about how he made it to the major leagues. And then there was another one where we were, we were talking for another project that he and I were going to do together on how ball four, how successful it was and the, 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 the blowback against it and how he felt about it and all of that. And so I thought to myself, you know, you, you, you've interviewed Ted Williams and you've interviewed Stan Musial and Ron Santo and Roy Campanella and uh, Phil Rizzuto and all of these people. And I've got tapes of all these conversations. Hmm. And, and back when I was a, I guess, a junior in college at Dartmouth, uh, I was the sports editor of the Dartmouth and I got a book. It was The Glory of Their Times by Larry Ritter. Hmm. And... You know, I've always been a huge baseball fan. When I was about 12, I read a book called The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. And I must have read that thing five or six times because it was an opportunity to hear, you know, what Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and DiMaggio were saying to, you know, to, to people and so forth. And Glory of Their Times was more of that. 
uh, Larry had gone around the country for about three years and he had interviewed players who had played for John McGraw, players who had played with Cobb, <clears throat> players who had played against Shoeless Joe Jackson and Babe Ruth. I thought this is just, you know, magnificent. And later, later, Larry and I became very good friends. Um, he was just a neat guy. He was an economics professor at NYU. Mm. And he, this was a love of his and he did it. <clears throat> he told me he really had no intention of, of, of making a book out of these interviews until the players started calling him. You know, when's the book coming out? <laughs> so, so, so he made a book out of it and it was spectacular. And, and I thought to myself, you know, with these interviews that I've done over the years, doing books like Bums and Dynasty and Wrigleyville and Fenway and Amazing about the Mets, there are a lot of very, very interesting ballplayers. And so I picked 16 of them, 17 chapters. I've got two chapters. Bounton is the first chapter and the last chapter. Um, Ted Williams, Stan Musial. Um, Roy Campanella, as I said, let me let me, let me find the uh, Rex Barney. Rex Barney was the one originally when I interviewed him for Bums, who told me about the time in Cincinnati when the Cincinnati fans were booing Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese, who was from Louisville, which is right across the river from Cincinnati, walked across the field and put his arms around Jackie. Mm. And, and now silence, silence the crowd. Mm. And I was so moved by that. I, I, I wrote a children's book called Teammates, which has been, you know, spectacularly popular for yeah. fourth and fifth grade kids. How do you, you know, you, you've got all these tapes, you've got all these iconic people yeah. who, who gave you their words. Um, how did you decide whose words to pull? Did you do it by stature of the players? Did you do it by quality of the story? Did you have did you have to re-listen to all the tapes to find the the best morsels, or did you have some mind going in? I I, I can pretty well remember how fabulous conversations were and what they were about. Um, so I picked, you know, the the, the name players. I mean. People would want to read what Ted Williams has, has to say about Shoeless Joe Jackson and why he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's hilarious, you know, in a way. I'm sitting at my desk working and the phone rings and I pick it up and I hear this voice, go on by. And, yes, it's Ted. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, Ted. I want to I want you to come over. I want to tell you why Joe Jackson belongs in the Hall of Fame. Well, you don't say no. <laughs> you don't say no to Ted Williams. So I got in the car and drove over to Ocala, and he spent you know an hour telling me why he thought Joe Jackson belonged in the Hall of Fame. And I have to tell you, it's it's the interactions with these people, who who you know sort of makes makes your life in a way, you know. Uh, Yes, you end up with material that you put books in, but the other great part of it is the opportunity, you know, to sit with Stan Musial, to sit with Roy Campanella uh, and listen to tell as he tells you about his life. I mean, just just 
Gene Connolly. Uh, I went to see Gene. Uh, lived in Foxborough. Um, wondering why, among other things, uh, one day he got off the team bus and he decided he was going to fly to Jerusalem. You know, it's a fairly famous story. It's like, what was that all about? And, you know, this is this this happened, what, 1960 something or other. And, and I'm interviewing him in seven and in, in 80 something or other. So, you know, it's these very famous people are no longer famous. Yeah. And you're coming into their lives with knowledge about who they are and what they did. And they're just most of them, most of them thrilled to have you. Yeah. What, what, what's what is it about that? Because players. I mean, it, it, frankly, I feel like this transcends sport. A lot of the ones who are really, really, really um, concise, let's call it, with their comments. Yeah. And are even not above doing the brush off. Yeah. As soon as they retire, all of a sudden they become expansive and they're holding court and they're telling stories. What What is it about that? Well, that I, I, I. As well. It's a very interesting question uh, because I think part of it is that the players who are covered by the everyday reporters after a while begin to see that sometimes they're not quoted properly and they become suspicious. And another thing is they just may not flat out like these guys. Mm. You know, they're nosy. They want to know. I mean, Roger Maris is one of the people in this book. And while he was hitting 61 home runs in 1961, starting around June, every day, nine reporters would come to him and say, Roger, do you think you can break Babe Ruth's record? And Roger, who was a very private guy, after a while, got really sick of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, 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 he loved playing in the games, but he couldn't stand the pregame and he couldn't stand the postgame. Because these people wouldn't leave him alone. Mm. And, and and the funny thing about Roger is that I, when I was doing Dynasty, this was Mike Burke's Yankees. This was before Steinbrenner came in, right before Steinbrenner came in. And Mike Burke gave me access. He gave me addresses and telephone numbers to every alum, every former Yankee player. I mean, can you imagine? Wow. I've never had that before. The only other team that would do that for me was the Dallas Cowboys. I did an oral history of the Dallas Cowboys. None of the other baseball teams would do that. They're very suspicious yeah. of, of, of writers. But under the Mike Burke era, they thought that this was would be good for the Yankees. Mm. And it, obviously, it turned out to be that way. But I had such access to these people. So, so with Maris... I would send him. I would. I sent him letters. I called uh, the Gainesville beer distributorship on the phone. I went to see to see him, and he and his brother told me he didn't think that he would talk to me because he had been treated very, very badly at the end of his Yankee career. Exactly how I wasn't sure, but I wanted to find out. So I, I went on to Atlanta to interview Cleet Boyer. Cleet owned the Golden Glove restaurant in Atlanta. And Cleet told me to meet him at 9 a.m. at the bar. <laughs> I got there at 9 a.m. And I'm sitting there drinking coffee while all these huge former high school football stars are telling me why they didn't become 
college and professional stars because they had gotten injured or for one reason or another. And it's noon and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm wondering, you know, where's Cleet? And it's six o'clock. And then at nine o'clock at night, Cleet shows up. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. And brings with him Roger Maris. Yeah, exactly. So Cleet says, Cleet says to Roger and me, you know, go sit at the table over there. I'll be back in a few minutes. So I'm sitting across the way from Roger. He obviously knows what I want, but I'm afraid to say to him, Roger, can we go outside and talk for fear that he'll say no. <laughs> so we're sitting there looking at each other. You know, how you doing? Fine. How are you? Fine. You know, that's it. And after about two minutes, Roger says to me, can we go outside and we'll talk? So I'm sitting on the on the hood of somebody's car with my pocket tape recorder talking to Roger Maris about his life with the Yankees. And it was stunning. Mm. It was absolutely stunning. Um, and it's in this book. It's in this Whispers of the Gods book, what we talked about. The, the entire the entire interview is in this book. Uh, for, for Dynasty, it's a piece there and a piece there. But, but to listen to Roger, to see the pain on his face um, as an example in the latter year with the Yankees, I think it was 66, he slid into home plate and caught his hand on the umpire's spikes and broke his hand. And mm. the Yankees took uh, x-rays and did not tell him his hand was broken because they wanted him in the game. They wanted fans to come to see Roger Maris play. And he found this out later. And then at the end of the 66 season, he told R Ralph Houck, who was the general manager of the Yankees at the time, he said, I'm going to retire. I've, I've had it. I don't want to play anymore. And Ralph says to him, look, do me a favor. Don't make an announcement. And we'll have a little get together for you in the spring. We'll announce it in the spring. So Roger says, oh, OK, I, we can do that. Two weeks later, Ralph Houck traded him to the St. Louis Cards. Mm. Wow. And 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 the code of that is, of course, that that Roger Maris led the St. Louis Cardinals to championships in 1967 and 1968. Why Roger Maris is not in the Hall of Fame right now driving me crazy. Mm -hmm. It's just not right. No, but but, but he's telling me the story that I just told you about how he had told Houck that he was going to retire and then how trades him away. Wow. Let me ask you this. Uh, you're you're covering the 1940s to the 1960s. Uh, those are the the, the 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 whispers that you're yeah. getting. Yeah. That that of course was most known as this, you know, the era of integration of the breaking of the color line. Oh yeah. In Major League Baseball. I've got some wonderful people talking about that. That's that's what I wanted to ask you. Oh no, I've got what stories. To I've you got about that. I've got Ralph. Let, let's see. Uh, the the great players I have obviously Roy Campanella is one of them, but uh, Rex Barney, who mm. was a Dodger then, interesting, wonderful guy, um, and also Kirby Higby, who was a pitcher on the Dodgers during the forties. Uh, Higby was one of the Southerners. Mm. Yeah, I love that you talk to not just uh, black players, but white players, too, about integration and what it sure. meant for sports. Sure, and, and you'll be interested, especially in Monty Irvin. 
who I was very close to. Monty was a gem of a human being. And he told me something he never told anybody else. He told me that Branch Rickey asked him to be the first African-American to play in the major leagues, even before he asked Jackie. Mm. And, and he proceeds to tell me the story how he's in the army and these white, white Southern officers are making Hello? the blacks just, you know, terrible, mm -hmm. treating, them, treating them so awful for two, three years. And, and so um, as a result of that, he is so psychologically scarred by his treatment of these white officers in the service that he says to Ricky, I, I'm just not emotionally able to take this on. I'll call you when I can. Mm. And basically he called him a couple of years later and he ended up at the Giants because Effa Manley, the owner of the Newark team, wanted $10,000 from Ricky for Ricky to get Monty Irvin and Ricky refused to pay. The, wow. Giants, the Giants paid it. So he became a New York Giant and took him to the World Series in 1951-1954. This might be a tough question, but do you have a favorite story? Do you have a favorite person that you interviewed? Do you have one that really stands out to you when you think about the book? Well, the, you know, the, these are these are some of the people I'm talking to. Um, I mean, I, I can't say that I have a particular favorite story. I've probably, if they're favorites, I've already told them to you in the last, okay. you know, the last <laughs> few minutes. Those are the ones that stick out the most in my mind. Um, no, that all those people, you know, Bouton was the one I was closest to. Um, Such a great guy. Yeah, he was. He was terrific. I once did an event with uh, Jim Bouton and Howard Zinn. Oh, my goodness. How fabulous. And we did How it in Boston. Fabulous. And it was... Uh, it was a packed house. I mean, several hundred people and they had never met each other before and they were yeah. huge fans of each other. So I introduced them both to each other in the, the green room and beforehand. And they were both as, as sheepish as teenagers meeting Elvis. It was very, very funny. Absolutely right. Howard Zinn, Howard Zinn is my hero. There is nobody <laughs> like that guy. He and is Howard is a huge baseball fan, so meeting Chief Bouton for him was was just uh, Howard was. was I'm sure thrilled. Sure. Um, you know, baseball has so much magic. You, you, you capture in this book. Um, you're capturing it's so clear. Probably what's considered the most magical era in baseball history that that period well, of integration well, for, for us. For us, it is. Well, yeah. You know, when I when I was a kid, when I was a kid. 1927 seemed like a million years ago mm -hmm. and yet i knew people who went and watched babe ruth and lou gehrig and the yankees in 1927 you know yeah my dad used to go see my dad's from brooklyn he used to go see jackie and everybody absolutely and it's it's that 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 boggles my mind there is one fella in this book by the name of ed frolick and i was living in englewood at the time and again the phone rings. It's you never know who's at the other end of the phone. The phone rings. It's hi, I'm Ed Froelich. 
I was Joe McCarthy's trainer. What? <laughs> with the Yankees. Okay, the guy's in his 80s. I, I guess he wanted to write a book. I only interviewed him one time. And the interview is in this book as well. He was with Brooklyn during the time Babe Ruth was with Brooklyn. And so Ruth was a coach. He wasn't playing, of course. He had retired, but the but Brooklyn wanted him to draw fans. He would take batting practice before the games, and people would come, obviously, to watch Babe Ruth take batting practice. And so Froelich says to him, did you really call your shot in the 1932 World Series? Um, and, and, and the response was so magical. He says to Froelich, Ed, can you hear me? And Froelich says, yeah. He says, Ed, can you really hear me? And Froelich goes, oh, yeah, babe, I can hear you. And babe says, if I had put my hand up like that to call my shot, that son of a bitch would have thrown the ball at my head and killed me. I guess that answers the question. It kind of answers the question, doesn't it? And sure. the other story he told, which I love so much, is that several of the Dodger pitchers would be teasing Ruth about his pitching ability. Because Ruth, as you know, when he was with the Boston Red Sox, was one of the prime pitchers in the league. He was Walter Johnson. He was Christy Mathewson. He was the best of the best. So these Dodger players are teasing him about his pitching. These are the starters, the stars of the Dodgers in 1940, I guess it was, 39, 40, 38. You have to look up to find the year that Ruth was the coach with the Dodgers. Anyhow, Ruth says to Froelich, I want you to help me, you know, work on my arm. And in three or four days, I'll show these guys what I can do. And Froelich tells me that Ruth goes out. He says, OK, boys, this is this is your chance to hit off me. He said these were the stars of the Brooklyn Dodgers and they couldn't touch him. They were lucky to get a loud foul. Ruth was so spectacular as a pitcher, even at age, you know, whatever he was, you know, 39, 40, whatever, whatever age Ruth was at the time. So th these are some of the other stories that are in this book as well. Oh, fantastic. So you're, you're capturing all this magic of the sport. Uh, do you think I, I'm still a huge baseball fan? I mean, how many? You should be. You're a smart guy. Yeah, I go to Orioles games. Of course you do. Of course you go to Orioles games. It doesn't <laughs> matter whether they win or lose. It no, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Hey, I went to the Tampa Bay Rays games for how many years before they started to win? <laughs> oh, the hit show, the worst. Loved every minute of it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Can baseball recapture its magic where it holds sway over the population? The, it depends on the population. The problem is that the kids who are 30 and under aren't going to any of these games. They're not going to baseball or football or basketball or hockey. They're sitting at home with these e-sports these e jiggies that they're playing on their computers and competing with each other around the world to see who's the best e-baseball player or the best e-football player or war something. It always has something to do with war. War of duty. War of something or war yeah. of something else. Uh, 
When my, my son was 13, 14, 15, he sat at home playing these goddamn games, <laughs> you know, killing people and, and winning battles. And but that's what that's that's what's taken over the young universe right now. These 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 e-games. <laughs> people can make a million dollars being a competitor in an e-game. They go to Madison Square Garden where two guys, the two top e-game players, can win. Each of them can win a million dollars in front of a crowd of 25,000 e-game players. Yeah, not not my world. <laughs> not mine either. No, I know. No, I know. I, a few years ago, I was teaching a course in sports and, uh, sports and American culture at USF, University of South Florida. And this kid comes up to me and shows me on his computer what they do. It was just shocking. I mean, you and I have no idea. I had no idea until he showed it to me. What's captured the minds of these kids? We've done one esports show on this podcast at the start of the pandemic because I thought, well, this is what people are going to do during the pandemic. And what I found is that, oh, I mean, kids still do love outdoor sports. I mean, they're out there masked playing. They're. Uh-huh. I mean, my son did socially distanced basketball <laughs> at the start of the pandemic, which was the weirdest thing you've ever seen. But so, so maybe there are some still uh, some still buds out there that can bloom. Oh, there are. There are. It's just it's it takes away from it. It used to be when we were growing up, there was, you know, there was there was nothing else. We would go out with three or four or five of our friends and play hit the bat and you're up. Uh, we play uh, stickball, catch a fly ball, and you're out. I mean, we had games that we played for three of us, four of us, five of us. Mm. A different time. Well, yeah. Peter Golden, what, what, what am I missing? Is there any last thing you want people to know about the book before we, we call it an interview? Any, any last uh, thoughts you want people well, to know? Since, since well, I'm, since I'm plugging books... Uh, I do have one other book that is out right now. It came out in November. Uh, why they brought it out in November, I have not the slightest idea. Uh, hopefully, baseball season will start in April. Uh, but it's one of the very, very best books that I've ever been involved with, and that's Valentine's Way that I did with Bobby Valentine. Uh, Bobby and I both come from Stamford, Connecticut. I saw him play... He was the starting shortstop for Ripawam High School when he was in the ninth grade. You never see that. You, you never see a kid with that much talent. And I watched him at a Ripawam versus Stanford High School football game. He scored five touchdowns. Mm. That's fantastic. And and so we, we, we wrote a, a book about his life called Valentine's Way. And, you know, you, you, you talk about baseball fans wanting to know what really goes on, what goes on behind the scenes, why players are traded, uh, why, you know, what, what discord there is between players and managers, managers and general managers, that sort of thing. Bobby was both a player and a manager. Mm. You, 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 you get to see it all in that book. I can tell you I have that book on my nightstand. Okay. So- that one I can highly recommend, and I am looking forward to reading Whispers of the Gods, Tales from Baseball's Golden Age, told by the men who, play it, who played it. 
Last question, Peter, because I ask this of everybody on the show. What music were you listening to as you were putting this book together? Or what music was playing beforehand or afterwards when you were, you know, mellowing out after a nice day at, at, at work? What, what, what's what's the music of Peter Golenbach? That would be Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. Ah, a classic off the Pet Sounds album, I think. Absolutely. Amazing. Peter Golenbach, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. It's it's always a pleasure. Uh, this is for me. This is this is beyond. This is beyond. This is like the sort of thing where if you told me I was 12, I was going to talk baseball. Your golden Bach, I would have fallen out of my seat. So th- thank you so much. My pleasure. Let's keep in touch. Definitely. All we'll right. Back right after this quick message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the part of the show. It might be the last one we do in a while unless we switch to another sport. But it is the Super Bowl, (laughs) the Super Bowl edition of Jake's Takes, which I'm extremely excited about. The Super Bowl edition of Jake's Takes. And it's the Los Angeles Rams, of course, playing in Los Angeles against the Cincinnati Bengals. We're going to find out who my son is rooting for. Uh, Before the season started, I'll just lay some things out. The Bengals actually had the fourth longest odds to even make the Super Bowl. And most people picked them to end up in fourth place in their own division in the AFC North. They not only won that division, they're in the Super Bowl. The Rams, so that's interesting. So the Bengals are like playing with house money, basically. Like the mere fact that they've made the Super Bowl is an insane accomplishment. The Rams are all in on this Super Bowl. They've been trading draft picks. They've been signing aging but extremely effective veterans like Von Miller. Uh, they they signed Odell Beckham Jr., which is looking brilliant off the waiver wires. And it's very interesting that the Rams also have, if you were ranking the 10 best players and you were counting both teams. Most of them would be Rams. Most of them would be Rams. And you would have to go through. Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, Jalen Ramsey, Matthew Stafford, and Cooper Cup, and then probably you would do Burrow as the fifth best player. Well, no, Joe Burrow's better than Matthew Stafford. Oh no. Yes, he is. No, Stafford had the best fourth quarter um, uh, quarterback rating in the NFL. I'm not. I really put... don't care. All right, so fine. Then we can argue <laughs> that about was that. Really rude. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was rude. That was very rude. It's okay. Now that you're like assistant coaching, you're thinking you're like. Okay, no need to talk about that. Yet. No need to talk about that. All right, so we've got um, Andrew Whitworth is a great player. I mean, you just have so much individual. Von Miller has been playing out of his mind um, over the of course, last like, five Odell weeks. Odell has been phenomenal. Looking top 15 again. So if you were doing the 10 best players in the Super Bowl, let's forget about ranking it because I don't want to get into that with you because it'll just start a big old fight. Um, I think Burrow 
Jamar Chase and that end Hendrickson, I think his name is, who has like Trey Hendrickson. Yeah, who has like 17 sacks or something. Mm -hmm. Those would be the only three people from the Bengals I think would even make the top 10. That is that is extremely, extremely disrespectful to Jesse Bates. To yes, he's a he's a let alone top 10 on these two teams. He's a top five. Yeah, but we just named we just named Aaron Donald. Uh, we just named Jalen Ramsey. We just named Andrew Whitworth. Matthew Stafford would be in the top Cooper 10. Cup. Cooper Cup those is, are the, might be th- number those two. Those are probably the only five. The only five? Von Miller, Von Miller, sure. And then you have four left. I don't think Odell's making that list. Let me tell you Even something. though he's, he, he contributes a lot. Jesse Bates is a top three okay. safety in the NFL. Why are you not including him on this? You are making David Tigabu upset. Also, there's Joe Mixon. You t- forgot about Joe yeah, Mixon. The less he's a said top about. He's Joe top Mixon seven running backs. Dobie Awuzie is having a phenomenal year as cornerback one. Mike Hillen's a great slot. You know, you have, I mean. I do like T. Higgins a lot. T. Higgins? I mean, he, he's not top ten. He's not top ten, but I'm a fan. But let, let's get to the subject. Obviously, so it's interesting. I'm actually glad, Jacob, that you pushed back on me about that because it reflects what's happening in the broader betting world. Because when the betting started, the Rams were favored by five, four and a half, five points. Now it's about three, three and a half. And people, you know, you know why lines change like that is because people are betting on the Bengals like crazy. So there's a buzz out there that people are saying Joe Burrow, quarterback of destiny, the Bengals on a hot streak. They can beat the Rams. There's a lot Aren't of pro these teams on a hot streak. I mean, true. Well, to even make the Super Bowl, you got to be on a hot streak. But the the Bengals are impressing people as a viable underdog, but the Rams yeah. are all in. I mean, you the know, game is being played in Los Angeles, which is kind also, of a cool thing. Also, this is actually one of Matthew, Star- Matthew Stafford's main targets, Tyler Higby, is out. Oh, Higby's out? Higby's out. Uh, Uzama's questionable, but I think he's going to play. Yeah, that's the tight end for the Bengals. Let's remember to keep people included okay, in the well, conversation who aren't football fans. Um all right, so we, we've laid it all out. The other thing that's interesting about this Super Bowl, and I just sort of made a little reference to it, is that after over 55, I mean, what year is this? For the 56th Super Bowl? This is 56. So the first 54 Super Bowls, you never had a team play in their home stadium. And now the last two, Tampa Bay and now Los Angeles, they're playing in the home stadium. I find that just kind of bizarre. Yeah. But it doesn't mean L.A. necessarily has a home field advantage because L.A. rarely has a home field advantage. Nobody else is going to be out, by the way, I don't think. Okay. So who do you like? I mean, you really have to, like, go over these two teams. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, this is a Super Bowl, all right? So, so I'm, I'm really going to go in depth with this because this is one game. This is one game. This is the biggest game of every year. You're betting to, the house. betting the house. This is... And this is like this is the biggest game of the year, you know. It's the most important one. All the games in the entire in the entire like season like lead up to this, you know. Mm-hmm. So let's start off with the Bengals, right? So these are two higher high power offenses, right? Bengals side, you know, you got Joe Burrow, very good in the regular season. He's been okay in the playoffs. I mean, it's nothing special. Four touchdowns, two picks. Yeah, like that's not great in three games, and you know. When you have, like, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, you know, 
he should be probably doing a little better than that. But Joe Burrow, he he's been exceptional this year. Just one comeback player of the year, you know. He's been he's been very good. You go to running back, you have Joe Mixon, who's a, like I said earlier, a top seven running back in the NFL. Uh, you know, Pro Bowl running back. And you got Samaj Perine behind him, who's good receiving back. You know, then you go to wide receiver. A lot of reliable targets. T. Higgins dropped 200 yards on us. Jamar Chase. Us being the Baltimore Ravens, everybody. Even though we were playing like our fifth string secondary. Okay. Doesn't matter. These are NFL level players. Jamar Chase, who also dropped like 140 yards on us. I mean, and then also Tyler Boyd, who's been a consistent target for these Bengals quarterbacks for many years. This offense is a very good offense. These are both very good offenses. And then you go to tight end. C.J. Uzama has really stepped up. He's been a reliable target. O-line, you know, we've always said that they're really terrible. They they, they've, they, they, they could be worse. Like, they aren't that bad, you know? Like, like, they're pretty bad. But, you know, to make the Super Bowl, you can't really have a bad offensive line. Like, they're, they're, they're below average, but mm-hmm. they, aren't, they aren't, like, terrible as they were, like, a year ago. And then you go to the defensive side. That D-line has really stepped up. You have Trey Trey Hendrickson on one side. You have Sam Hubbard on the other side, who's been balling out, by the way. Larry Ogunjobi, who is an underrated defensive tackle. You have DJ Reader as well. Like, this is a really good defensive line. Also, it's funny to me how Geno Atkins and A.J. Green both left right after, like, after a lifetime with the Bengals, Gino, Gio Bernard, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean people who put a lot of themselves into this team. Yeah. And then, like, like that's a very good defensive line. We also have BJ, who, BJ Hill, who you traded for, I think it was during the regular season. And then you go to linebacker, a really good young linebacking group. You know, you have Akeem Davis Gaither, who's who was a rookie in 2020. You have Logan Wilson, also a rookie in 2020. He had a really good year. You have the the, the vet of the the vet of the linebackers, Jermaine Pratt, who's very good, you know? He's not very good. Let me scratch that. Mm-hmm. I really don't like Jermaine Pratt. I was just kind of mount I was just kind of talking. I lost track. But um Jermaine Pratt, good vet. And then you go to the secondary you know, you have Eli Apple, who's been talking the most crap out of anybody I've ever seen on Twitter. Stobie Awuzie, very good. Trey Flowers sucks. But, you know, you have Mike Hilton in the slot. And then, of course, top three safety, Jesse Bates, Von Bell, very good safety duo. And then, of course, second best kicker in the NFL, of course, behind Justin mm. Tucker, Evan McPherson, who's been phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. This Bengals team all right, so are you He's picking scared. the Bengals? I mean, we'll see. No, we'll see. I want to yes. hear your prediction. All right, well, now we got to go over the Rams, you know? You got you to gotta go over the Rams. Of course, the Rams, high-powered offense, also a very good defense. Both of these teams have It's good a great defense. matchup. It is a great, great matchup. Great matchup. Great matchup. And this Rams team, you know, they have Matthew Stafford, who, big arm, big, big play kind of guy. You know, he's probably playing to go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think he's going like to be a he Hall wins, of Fame. If he wins this game. I mean, he's 34 years old and he's doing this. Like, that. that isn't, like, too old for QBs. But, I mean, like, Based I, I mean, Russell Wilson is, is, is slowly, slowly, slowly going out of his prime. Yes. And he is 32. You know, so 
what what Matt Stafford's doing at the at like near the end of his career after leaving a, a poverty franchise ouch in Detroit so he what he's doing is amazing and it really shows the wasted talent and potential coming out of Georgia in 2010 you got Cam Akers young running back very good in my opinion you got you got Daryl Henderson Jr. stepped up, Sony Michelle. And then you go over to the wide receivers. Of course, you have to mention Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup, one, one of the, the best great wide receivers ever. One of the greatest wide receiver seasons of all time. 20 yeah. yards away from Calvin Johnson. I mean, 13 games of 100 yards receiving. No one's ever I mean, done that. Nobody has seen anything like this besides like Calvin Johnson. As I we believe said. he led and, the NFL in yards after catch. And I mean, he was also he was a triple crown. You know? Yeah, he triple so, crowned like, it. He, he, he's just unreal. And then, of course, they, they got Odell off of waivers, and he has been very, very good. And he has stepped up in late games, and he has really looked like yeah. the Odell that we saw in New York. And then you go to tight end. Tyler Higby, of course, he's going to be out. I mean, they, they probably aren't going to use their tight ends on that much. Of course, I didn't even mention Van Jefferson, big play kind of guy as well. He's, he's I really like him, young guy. And then you go over to the O-line, you have vet Andrew Whitworth, who has mm-hmm. been, it feels like he's been in his prime mm-hmm. for 20 years, ever since he was all the way in Cincinnati. Wow. Cincinnati Connect, that's right. Yep, Just named Walter Connect. Payton Man of the Year, too. Yeah, he, he had a great speech about that. Derek Barnes, did you see that? Oof. That was that was amazing. It was moving. Of course, Robert Robert Havenstein. Okay, David okay, Edward. Robert. Okay. Now you're into Robert Havenstein. We're gonna move on and yeah. get to a prediction here. We've been through the all teams. All right, all right. The one thing. Let me just name a couple of defensive players. Okay, Aaron Donald, of course. Leonard Floyd is very good. Uh, uh Von Miller, you know, Jalen Ramsey. All these guys are gonna step up, and then of course, team captain Eric Weddle. Ah, former Raven. Former Raven. We'd mainly, love to see. Mainly. Former Charger. Former Charger. I'd love to see Weddle get a ring, though. All right. So. Weddle's so popular among other NFL players. Yeah. I've read a lot of Ravens players are, like, actually devastated a little bit. Like, they're happy for him, but they were like, we wanted him to come back with us. (laughs) He's a really likable guy. But now it comes to the pick, all right? I got to do the score, of course, you know? Of course. So. I think. I really want the Rams to win. I really do because I do not want to see Joe Joe Burrow. Joe Shiesty. Joe Burrow getting a ring in his in his first like real year as a full time starter because you know he was injured. <sighs> Forget about what you like. Who do you think's gonna win? This is it, baby? I think Odell's getting his ring. Oh. I think Odell's getting his ring. I think Von Miller's going to get his second. I think Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, you know, the end the score. It's going to be it's going to be 31 to 27. Oh, oh, oh. Stafford is good in the fourth quarter. I told you he led the NFL in passer rating in the fourth quarter this year. That's got to count for something. Well, Jacob James Khalil Zyron, we got your pick. 3427. 3127. Ooh, 30, sorry, my bad. 3127 Rams. Uh, you didn't answer one thing though. That's mm. the second biggest bet after the game. Mm. Who's MVP? Super Bowl MVP. You know who it's gonna be? Who? You know? Who? 
going to be Odell. No after way. After he gets an 100-yard game and two touchdowns, all right? <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr., Super Bowl MVP. You heard it here first, man. Yeah, love it. Love it. Wow, I thought you were going to go with a Bengals prediction after all that lead-up, but I actually both agree with and respect not just that pick, but all the work you've done this year on the podcast. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words about the National Football League and its ongoing racism. Okay, look, just three days after issuing a statement that Brian Flores' racial discrimination suit was without merit, the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell are officially changing tactics. Following a backlash both inside and outside of the league against their initial hardline stance, Goodell has now lurched toward a more conciliatory position. Well, don't trust it. Goodell's new public posture is a display of gaslighting and corporate doublespeak that takes great care to not expose the shield to more lawsuits. This new letter from the desk of Roger Goodell begins by saying, I want to address a subject that many of us have discussed together, not only this week, but for many years. Translation. Know you're upset about the few numbers of black head coaches among the 32 teams? Well, we're upset too, all on the same side in the long march against racism. He then ups the ante by saying, racism in any form of discrimination is contrary to the NFL's values. This is a lie clear to anyone who knows the mathematics of the NFL's hiring patterns. No, this is a league that fetishizes the projection of black talent and black bodies under the rule of white authority. The statement is also a cowardly broadside at Brian Flores. How could anyone accuse the NFL of such a thing given our values? Haven't you seen the end racism decals on the helmets? Aha. But then Goodell makes a clumsy pivot towards reconciliation saying that the NFL recognized that there are quote-unquote concerns and that it would enlist a super special outside committee to reevaluate and examine all policies, guidelines, and initiatives relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is on the face very confusing. If three days ago the lawsuit was without merit, then why is there now a need for an outside committee to investigate? If racism and discrimination are contrary to the NFL's values, then why, 30 years after Art Shell broke the coaching color line, is this display of apartheid athletics possibly getting worse? Goodell should not be permitted to speak about the NFL as if that Park Avenue entity is somehow divorced from the 32 people who run the franchises and whose employment patterns created this crisis. Then at the end of the letter, there are three sentences that reveal an even deeper owner's box of vulnerability than decades of racist hiring practices. 
As a part of Flores' lawsuit, he tells the story of Miami Dolphins franchise owner Stephen Ross offering him $100,000 for every loss in order to secure a high draft pick, money that Flores refused. For Flores, this is part of a consistent pattern of having black head coaches helm disasters and then firing them at the first opportunity of a high draft pick and possible turnaround, something Flores knew could, and then eventually did, happen to him. But that part of it is not what upset Goodell. At a time when the NFL is cozying up to the gambling industry like a pair of United Lost Loves, any idea that these games are not being played on the up and up could affect that partnership. After waxing rhapsodic about diversity and inclusion, Goodell writes bluntly, we also take seriously any issue relating to the integrity of NFL games. These matters will be reviewed thoroughly and independently. We expect these independent experts will receive full cooperation from everyone associated with the league or any member club as this work proceeds. Flores's lawyer responded by pointing out that Flores has not heard from Goodell despite efforts at direct contact. He finished with the kind response. On the surface, this is a positive first step, but we suspect that this is more of a public relations ploy than commitment to change. Well, of course it's a public relations ploy. After the without merit response fell flatter than a medical lecture from Aaron Rodgers, Goodell saw a need to tack away from the charges of racism and game throwing and toward the Super Bowl and the easily digestible family-friendly storylines that come with what is traditionally the most watched spectacle in the United States. Now, every time a reporter asks about these issues, instead of sweating under the hot lights, he can say, well, that's why we have an outside committee. For Goodell, these kinds of embarrassing, risible contortions are why he makes a staggering $64 million a year. Oh my God. It's not proud work to front for billionaire racists by proclaiming a commitment to fighting racism or to commit your league passionately to a lucrative industry that will send new generations into fits of financial duress or even addiction, but it certainly does pay. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the people of Los Angeles who've been protesting the removal of unhoused communities right by SoFi Stadium where the big game is going to be taking place. So we know that when the Super Bowl comes to a city, it tends to be built on the backs of the most vulnerable populations. That's certainly happening um, in Los Angeles. And the people leading the protest, just want to give them a shout out, are No Olympics LA. And they're in this long marathon organizing against the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles. And city officials have called this Super Bowl a dress rehearsal for those Olympics. And dress rehearsal is a fine and kind and family-friendly way of saying mass surveillance and the displacement of unhoused people. So this needs to be opposed. It needs to be opposed strongly as all sporting shock doctrines need to be opposed. So a big, big shout out to No Olympics LA and the people leading those protests. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. goes to the people No Olympics LA are pushing back against, Roger Goodell, all the one percenters showing up to the Super Bowl, turning it into like a prom for the filthy rich. Just all he is. We're living in a time of just great duress and savage inequalities. Maybe tone it down a tad. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Thank you so much to writer Peter Golenbach. Thank you to Jacob Zirin, Jake's Takes, 
We'll see if we can refigure that. I know it's so popular on the show uh, for the post-football world. Everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>